0: Man, let's pray. Lord, we do need you. Every hour, every minute, every situation, every struggle. Lord, we need you. I thank you for every time in our lives that we've come to the end of ourselves and we realize that in a fresh way that we need you. Thank you for your word that keeps telling us again and again how much we need you, and I thank you that when we cry out to you, you are there. You're there for us in our time of need, and so, Lord, we just we just thank you so much for your faithfulness to us, your goodness to us. This morning, Lord, I need you as a speaker to share the, this message. So I pray that you'd you'd help me, you'd help me to uh, communicate what's needful and edit what's not in your name amen amen we've been going through the book of first corinthians uh, for a few weeks now and uh, so i'd encourage you because i'm gonna actually travel pretty much straight through the end of 1 Corinthians 6 and then get into First Corinthians 7. So I'd, gra- I'd encourage you if you got your Bible or you've got Bible on your phone or maybe you grab one of the bench Bibles in front of you, I can't remember the page number on the bench. Bible. I think it was 937, but I'm not quite sure if that's right. I just, I looked at it this morning, but I can't remember what the page number is. But anyhow, if someone gets there, do you want to tell me what the page number is to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and it's the latter half of the chapter. 1775 wow I was so off it wasn't even funny oh you're not using the pew Bible you're so off it's not even funny okay (laughs) 934 okay and that that... whoa 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 were you all using the same Bible or what 934 936 okay I'm looking for 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12. 927. That's the la- I'm not taking any more bids, okay? That's that's the final. All right. I'm glad you're so woke. That's great. All right. So I'm going to I You know when you when you set out to preach through 1 Corinthians, you sort of go, well, the ethics is going to be great, and then you realize that every single chapter is a landmine. And uh, I feel like today, this one is just full of landmines, and I thought, maybe I could just do one sermon where I try to dance through all the landmines in one sermon, and if I come out the other side alive, then it'll be easier next week. So um, anyhow, that's what we're going to do today, and uh, we'll see how this goes, and um, this is confusing, I find chapter 7 especially confusing, and I'm going to go from 6 into 7. Chapter 7 is confusing, but I tried my best to try to help bring some clarity, and I hope I can do that today. So let's begin with the end of chapter 6 and verse 12. It says, I have the right to do anything. Let's stop. I have the right to do anything is in quotes. So the first helpful thing you probably need to know about this, the, Paul's letter to the Corinthians is he often quotes back to them their popular sayings. So when he says, I have the right to anything, he's saying something that's commonly said in, Corinth- in, the, in the, the city of Corinth, and even the Christians commonly say it. So it's like he's using a, a, a phrase that they all get. It's like, oh yeah, that's just a cliche. Everybody always says, I have the right to do every- anything. And so he's using it and he's sort of semi-validating it, but then he always sort of brings the butt in to clarify, right? So it's sort of like he's just using their terminology. So that'll come in handy later as well. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything, right? So he immediately says, you know, when you say, I have the right to do anything, you should, all, you should be asking these questions. Is it beneficial? And um, will it master me or is it addictive? Is it something that will gain a power over me in my life? Then maybe it's not wise to do that. You say, another one of their sayings, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Let me paraphrase. It's he's speaking to the group. There's two groups that we're gonna talk, he's speaking to today. The first group is the group who has become very sexually. Uh, promiscuous in the culture the Corinthian culture is very sexually promiscuous. There's a couple different temples in town uh, part of the worship in those temples is The, uh, the use of prostitutes and uh, for the Corinthian men in the town. It was not uh, Abnormal or even strange to go and participate in that kind of worship in the temple, which in- involved um, sexual immorality So, he's saying, the way you're thinking about it, and these are even people in the church, is that food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. In other words, what does it matter what you do with your body? That's the general gist of the the sentiment or the understanding that a lot of the Corinthians had. What does it matter what you do with your body? Sexual desire is just like the desire for food, it's just a desire, and God doesn't really care what you do with your body. That's the big thing, and so He responds, saying, with layer after layer, how God actually does care about what you do with your body. And so let's read further. It says the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So God means for your body to be dedicated to His purposes. By his power, reading verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. So that's another part about our body. Our bodies will be resurrected. So you you think about the future, having a glorified, uh, resurrected body uh, in heaven with God. Well, that's that's where we're going. So what's implied is our life now should line up with where we're going, right? So our, our bodies... Uh, it should be used for holy purposes. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? So if your body is really dedicated to the Lord, this union with a prostitute just seems like a total clash. Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? Now, That's something in our own culture today that a lot of people don't know, this this dynamic. And let's read further. It says, for it is said, the two will become one flesh. Now this quote is not quoting the Corinthians, he's quoting the Bible. He's quoting the very beginning when God said, I'll take male and female, and they'll leave their father and mother, and they'll cleave together, not cleave it like this, cleave like this. It means to be strongly united, and they'll become one flesh. The two will become one. One flesh. They'll be so united that they have become one. For it is said, whoever, uh, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And that's it's true. So here's my first big jumping off point, And uh, hopefully I can jump off and come back again because there's so much packed into this. Sex is not just a physical act. The Bible teaches us that. But we know that as well. We know that as well. And God does not, did not design sex this way. Sex was God's idea. It's a good thing he created. It's his design. And how he designed it was not just as a physical act. And no matter how much people tell themselves, it's just a physical act. It doesn't actually work that way. Sex is an act that's meant to bond a man and a woman together. And So you say, well, you we can just sort of have this, and then leave that, it doesn't work. Now, what we've got some um, realities in our world today that we could probably trace back, well, we can trace it back to sin, but uh, culturally, we would trace it back to the 1960s sexual revolution. And that was a time where people said, does sex have to be inside of marriage? That was sort of the common teaching, you know, if you're not married, you don't have sex. And if you're married, you have sex. Does it have to be inside of marriage? Why can't we have sex without marriage? And, and not only that, what about sex without pregnancy? What about sex without motherhood? Or sex without fatherhood? Sex, wouldn't it be great if sex had no consequences? Wouldn't it be great if sex? And that was sort of the big thought. That was the big thought of the sexual revolution, is that we could just have sex, and there would just be no consequences. The problem was that the consequences didn't go away. People did this great experiment. I say great as in big, not great as in good. This big experiment in the culture where we just said, well, let's just find out if we take away, if we stop anchoring our boat to the... uh, the morals of of the Bible and the the truth that we've known for all these years and that sex should be inside a marriage. And let's just see what happens if we just go drifting. And what happened is you saw a huge increase in sexually transmitted diseases. You saw um, lots of broken hearts, lots of broken homes, lots and lots and lots of confusion about what does it mean to be a man or a woman or is there even such a thing as a man or a woman? And, what I'm going to talk to you about particularly tomorrow, you saw a lot of babies being conceived in the womb. I had promised a few weeks ago when our staff, with some of our staff, I said, well, at some point I've got to talk about abortion this year, and I'm going to talk about it now. And probably the timing is really apropos, because it's sort of back in the news. In Canada, abortion doesn't get into the news very often because we're Canadians, and Canadians are polite, and Canadians are not confronta- confrontative. Do you have any relatives who are British? I, I'm, my background's British. They like to confront. Do you have any relatives who are Americans? They like the British a bit that way, too. But Canadians are different that way. We don't like to confront. So you know when, you know when a, abortion gets into the news? Maybe there's a politician who has sort of sticks his neck out and says, we should have a conversation about abortion. They don't actually have a debate about abortion, but they have a debate about whether they should have a debate about abortion. That's how Canadians do it. In the United States, they just go full-on head-to-head. They're just like, boom, boom. Like They they confront. They talk. They get into the nitty-gritty. The British do the same thing, but the Canadians, we don't do that. We don't talk about those things. Because we know we disagree. And well, we don't want to bring it up. It's like we're that family that has all the unwritten rules that you can't talk about, right? Can anyone relate? Anyone? How, how many of you came from a family that had some, don't ever talk about that rule? You just knew it. You just knew it. Anyone come from that family? You come from that family? Yeah, come on. You admitted it. You're so brave. I love it. I think most families have a little bit of that. But of course, you couldn't raise your hands because that would be admitting it and that would be like talking about it. <laughs> You're so polite. Well, Canada has an abortion problem. We do have an abortion problem. We have lots of babies. The sexual revolution said, now we're going to have sex, and, and, and hopefully there won't be any consequences, but there were consequences. And then what do we do about the consequences? Well, lots of babies have been conceived, and in Canada, lots of babies are aborted. And I'm just going to walk you through some stats here that might help you to get a big picture. I'm not dialing down to the nitty gritty. I'm going to try to stay big picture today on this one. So, Canada's abortion problem um, one in four babies that are conceived in Canada are aborted. So, three babies are born in, in the hospital, and then there's one that's aborted. Okay, that's our, st- our stats one in four. And um, what does that one in four mean? That means one hundred thousand abortions in Canada every year. One hundred thousand. Okay, three moose jaws are aborted every year. So that's the actual stats. Now, what? Now, but what's the stories? Like, what's the reality? What's going on behind that? Well, they, they say that because, you know, there's lots of things that we think about. Well, well, you know, in some situations, I'm not sure if abortion's a big deal, and in other ones, I think it is. And, you know, we go back and forth on that. So, what, so I try to drill down and find out more. So less than 1,000... So, so some of them are really extreme cases. Rape and incest, less than 1,000. Less than 1% of, of abortions. But what about when the mom is... In danger of maybe, uh, you know, losing your life. That's in, that's in the 3% range. So that's a total of 4%. That means 96% of abortions in Canada, or 96,000 abortions, which is still three moose jaws, our abortion is just a, it's a backstop to birth control. That's what it is. So if you just threw that, if you take that 4% and you just set it aside and you say, we can argue about that later, you still are left with Canada's abortion problem, which is almost still 100,000 abortions in our land. It's pretty, sort of shocking numbers when you, when you look at it that way. You know what the wait time for adoption in Canada is? It's about 8 to 10 years. You know what? How many? What percentage of babies that could be adopted are adopted? It's less than one percent. So I've got a few thoughts about it. But first, let me talk about the uh, the thing that's in the news, and then I'm going to come back to what I think are three. Potential responses. And this isn't my whole message. we still got to talk about marriage and singleness and all sorts of things yet. But I just want to talk, talk. So, right now, it's back in the news because of the Canada Summer Jobs Grant. Has anyone heard of the Canada Summer Jobs Grant? Maybe some of you have. Okay. So, the Canada, we apply for it every year as a church. The Canada Summer Jobs Grant. Because we like to employ summer students. That's like students who are in university or in college or Bible college or whatever, and they're, they're going to go back to school, and they need a job in the summer, and so there's this program you can apply for, and it helps give you funding. Last year, we got funding enough to pay about three-quarters of our summer students' salary for the summer, and it was great, and they did a great job, helps us with Mega Sports Camp, phenomenal. And uh, so we applied this year. Now, this year, things had changed. Instead of normally applying like you normally do, now there's a little uh, attestation attached. That if you didn't check this attestation on the website, then your application would be rejected. And let me read you the first part of the attestation. It said, you have to attest this. Basically, I attest that this is true. This is what you have to say. Both the job, the summer job, and my organization's core mandate respect individual human rights in Canada, including the values underlying the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, as well as other rights. These include reproductive rights. I'm going to pause there. There's more than it says. So most of it sounds nice, respecting rights, although they're not defined, and values underlining the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedom, which are also not defined, and then it says reproductive rights. So you might object on the fact that you don't know what you're agreeing to because some things are undefined. That might be enough. You might also object on the fact that you're actually being asked to state what you believe in order to access government services. You might object on that basis. I've started to see this crop up at a few different things. I was going on Airbnb and I wanted to like rent a room and I got it all done, and I got to the point where I was going to rent the room, and then suddenly, bing, their non-discrimination policy pops up. And it basically says, you can't rent rooms from us unless you agree to these ideas. Unless you believe what we believe at Airbnb, you can't actually rent a room from us. I was all done and invested in the room, and now I read it carefully. You can go check it out for yourself. Go check out their, their non-discrimination policy. I read it, read it, read it, and thought, no, I think this one I could actually attest to and agree with, and so I actually did click the box. And while I'm on this trip with my son, staying in that one room, I pledge not to discriminate against all these different people groups, which won't be staying in the room with us, so I don't know how it applies. But anyhow, <laughs> I sure hope they're not staying in the room with us because <laughs> that was the point of, anyhow... It's an interesting new thing it's an interesting new ethical dilemma anyhow as a church we felt like the inclusion of even if you were just saying, I've seen articles where people are saying I will not check the box just because you are telling me what to think they have no it's not a religious reason it's not any other reason people are just saying you're telling me what to think and I will not check the box for that reason alone but the inclusion of reproductive rights, because that's what we're... I'm, I'm going to just jump to there. I'm going to jump to there, is where it ties in with, with abortion. Reproductive rights. The argument of reproductive rights is tied into it, the sexual revolution. We want to have sex without consequences. In fact, this is, this is a very commonly used argument. If a man and a woman have sex, and a baby is conceived, the man can just walk away. So why shouldn't also the woman be able to? That's the argument. Now for me, I would object to some points. Firstly, first of all, I would object to the fact that I don't think the man should just walk away. I don't think he should be able to. I think he should step in and be responsible. But that's the argument. That's the common argument held today. And you know, it it sounds compassionate, but it sort of brings us down to our lowest common denominator. It's sort of saying, we have impulses, we have desires, we want to have sex. And so we have sex outside of marriage when we're not committed to each other. When we can't provide, or we aren't planning to provide a home for this child. And so we have sex, and we get pregnant, and it's not our fault. It sort of seems like it's bringing us down to this level of, uh, you know, we're just animals. And then we need to get rid of the consequences. Because we want sex without consequences. So we didn't check the box, so we're not likely to get summer students, but I think we can respond and think a little bit about what we can do about abortion in Canada, and I'm going to give you three things, and then I'm going to lead you in prayer because I'm really concerned that right now there's an offense growing in your heart, and I introduced it. And I want to pray with you so that you, don't, that you go away free of that offense today. Okay, so I'm going to come back to this because one of the great dangers is that Christians, just like the rest of the culture around us, get caught up in a cycle of being offended. Christians are the last people in the world who should be offended. We are rich in Christ, undeservedly rich in Christ because of what he's done for us on the cross. There's no injustice done to a Christian that can ever tip the balance of scales of justice against us. We have the forgiveness and the leadership and the love of God and we have it for eternity. We're heirs of eternal life. So throw anything on the other side of the scale, no matter how heinous, no no matter how unjust, and we're still the winners. We still receive more mercy and grace than we deserved. We still are coming out the beneficiaries of God's grace, and so our understanding of what God has done for us allows us to be free of offense because of the fact uh, we're undeservedly rich because of His grace. So I want to bring us back to that, but let me just talk about abortion really quickly. Three, three. I have three thoughts. Let me see if I can just find get the right paper here in front of me. Yeah, three thoughts. First of, first of all, if we're because abortion is not just a thing on its own, I think it's very much tied to how we view sexuality. Inside the church, this is where we need to start, inside the church, we need to view sexuality and sex properly. Inside the church, we need to have hearts that are changed In such a way that it affects sexual behavior that means inside the church having individuals who submit their physical desires and their love life to the lordship of jesus christ and when new people come to faith in christ that they're they're discipled and they're taught to honor god with their bodies let me just read you the next few verses in in chapter six flee from sexual immorality Before we even offer that to the culture around us, we need to absorb that for ourselves. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins, a person commits are outside the body. Whoever sins sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. That's the gospel. You're not your own. You're bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The first thing that needs to happen is Christians need to know and and at the deepest level of who they are that they are not their own and that they were bought with a price and to live a life where they honor God with their bodies. Paul's letter is not written to the culture around the church. It's written to the church. So he says, I'm writing to you. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Honor God with your body. But we live in a culture like the Corinthian culture. And this is a huge challenge. It's hard. It's a sexually obsessed culture. It's a culture where it's we're not far away at any moment from lies and negative influences and... and uh, and imagery, and all sorts of things. So how do you live pure in this culture? How do you live pure? How do you honor God with your body in a culture that's set on experimentation in this area and going a different direction? Well, I think we need to battle for it. We need to fight for it. We need to be willing to talk about these things. We need to be willing to uh, engage the struggle that's there. Not just sort of turn a blind eye to it, but actually say, this is real. We are called to be a pure people in a society that that has lost its moorings, that isn't anchored anymore, that's adrift when it comes to sexual morality. And there are lots of great people in our culture who still hold to very strong sexual morals, but kids growing up, have less and less of a blueprint in this area all the time. So as the church, we probably need to do more to spell out what the blueprint is. Let me tell you about one thing we're going to do about it. Let me tell you one thing. Oh, man, there's so much we need to do. There's so much work to be done in this area. But let me tell you one thing we're going to do, okay? Just one thing, very practical. In about six weeks, end of March, right around like March 20th or somewhere like that, I don't know, we haven't picked the night of the week yet, we're going to host... a video series here at our church for five weeks. For five weeks, we're going to show a video series called Conquer. So it's called Conquer. And it's all about, it's for men only. It's for men only. It's all about gaining the tools you need in order to win this battle for sexual purity in your life. And I think, you know what, who I think should come to this? If you struggle at all, come even just a little bit. And if you don't struggle, come and get equipped to help other people who do. You know what's interesting? Now, you say, why are you just offering this for men? Well, we probably will at some point in the future offer stuff for women as well because we know that women struggle too. More and more that's I'm getting more aware of that all the time. I think every time I talk about this area in the church, uh, the women on our staff say, you know, women struggle too. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I I know that. I just really want to help guys because, well, I guess I'm a guy. And so we want to help women too, and we will do some stuff for that as well, probably in the future. If you're interested in helping lead that as a woman, talk to me. Love to to have that conversation. But we've got to begin somewhere. We've got to take a baby step. But I'd love to see in the church not only that we're equipped to win in this area, but that we're equipped to help others. That we're equipped to help others. So the messages that are not helpful are steadily streaming in our culture every day, 24-7. I think it's okay to balance that out with taking some concentrated time. I'm just asking for five weeks. I'd love to have 100 guys at it. I'd love to have 100 guys at it. I've talked to a couple guys who've gone through this Conquer series and other churches, and they say, it's it's not cheesy, uh, it's, it's, it's helpful. It really has made a difference. I actually know of a church out uh, in Manitoba where they, um, it's a big church, but they took 1,200 of their men through it. 1,200 men all took it at once. I'd love to see 100 of our guys do it, but we'll see, see what happens. But I'll just throw that out to you. That and things like it, I think we just need to be in the game in this area and say, let's recognize that we live in a culture that's very much like the Corinthian culture. And so we need to talk about these things. Let me tell you this. So, so that's the, you say, this is about abortion? Yeah, that's about abortion. Because abortion is a fruit. And the root is throw, setting aside or throwing aside God's teaching about sexuality. That's the root. And so we want to go right to the root. We Because we can do some stuff about the fruit, but you know if the root doesn't change, we're well, still going to have the same thing happening all the time. Here's the second thing. I think for the outside the church, we need to give those outside the church a picture of abortion's option. I think one of abortion's best options is adoption. Now, here's a quick question. Okay, quick. I'm only going to give you a few seconds for this. I want you to count on your fingers. And That means you've got to name people. Everyone you know under the age of 18 who's adopted, Go. Everyone you know under the name of eight, anyone you know under the age of eighteen who's adopted, go. Okay, time's up. Now everybody raise your hand. Everybody raise your hand. Don't you don't have to show how many you have. Okay, if you. Couldn't think of any kids under the age of 18 who were adopted. For some reason, you're saying, man, I haven't had my coffee, Steve. Or I, I really don't know anyone who was adopted under the age of 18. Just pull your hand down. Okay? A lot of hands went down. Okay? How many, how many of you only know one adopted child? Pull your hand down. I wonder if they were all the same child. Uh, how, many you know, <laughs> how many of you know, how many of you know, let's say, two to four? Put your hand down, two to four. Okay, now this is five and up, five and up. And it's not that many, okay? How many of you know, uh, let's say five to seven. You put your hand down. Five to seven, put your hand down. Oh, I got some. Wow, we got a few. Who's got their hand up still? Who's got their hands up? You guys, how many do you know? Just the number. Eight. Eight. Wow. Five of them are in one family. That's how you win these games. Uh, Yeah, good for you. (laughs) That's great. That's great. When I was in college, I was in, at, in my third year of college, I was in a class of 30. In that class of 30, there were six that were adopted. Every fifth student, one, two, three, four, adopted. One, two, three, four, adopted. one two, adopted. They were some of my best friends. It's not that way anymore. Something's changed in the psyche in the in the in the understanding of what adoption is in our culture and it's not viewed as positively as it was when people were adopting my peers, my friends. I think we are it's a time for that to change. And I think what we need to do for that to change is we need to be have Good pictures of adoption. In fact, this is the vision that I, this came to me just the other night. What if every single person in Moose Jaw knew one really good adoption story? Every single person in Moose Jaw knew one good, really good adoption story, and not one that's 20 years ago, one that's current. Well, what would that take? I went to an adoption seminar at another church, Harvest City Church in Regina, with my wife. And when we were interested in adoption, we went over to to this, and they had up this couple who was in their 30s, and then this um, young college-aged woman. And they were up on this panel, and she had gotten pregnant and was a little bit confused about what to do with her pregnancy. And then, through different connections... She got connected to this couple who was in their 30s who couldn't have kids, and so she gave her uh, daughter, I think it was, up for adoption to this couple. It was an open adoption so that this couple uh, provided a great home for their kid, for the, for the daughter. Sorry, I'm getting confused. And then this girl continued to go to college. All the while, she knew her daughter was being raised well, and then she had access, and there was visits, and this 30 something couple who sort of had life more in, you know, figured out became like a mentoring couple to this young mom. So they were raising the daughter and mentoring the mom and and here they are in a panel and I was just sitting there and going I know this is hard because they talked about the realities of how hard it was but this is beautiful. This is good. I wish everybody could sit where I'm sitting right now and see how good it can be. Because there's something in the psyche of Canadians that sort of thinks adoption is a bad thing. So the church is perfect to change the picture because we're the people who've received the gospel. We're the people who are God sacrifices Himself so that we can have life. So we're perfect because we're followers of Jesus. We're the perfect people to reenact that exact same process, where we—whether that's a young mom giving up their child for adoption, huge sacrifice—or we, whether it's a couple who says, "I'm going to make room in our—we're going to make room in our lives to bring a child into our lives." Huge sacrifice. So that one can have life. I think that's, I think that's part of what God wants to do in, in our culture. There's something wrong. I, every person in Moose Jaw knew one positive adoption story. I wish I was preaching this sermon in 20 years. I'm an early, we, we, we adopted, some of you know that we've adopted. We're early in the game. I feel so I feel like oh this is the moment where I'm all idealistic about it and it's going to get hard and then later on and stuff. I want to preach this in 20 years. I want to be able to say, yes, it was hard. Yes, it was difficult. And yes, it's a perfect representation of the gospel. And it's only by God's grace we can do it. Here's the third thing I think that will help us. So yeah, so First, let's deal with the root in the church. Second, let's give an example outside the church. We want everyone in Moose Jaw. Uh, well, I'm not saying you've adopted this idea, adopted. Everyone knows a good adoption story, and everyone knows a community that adopts children. The church. Change the psyche. Here's the third thing that I think would be really helpful. And this is why we probably can't, for sure, click a button on the internet to attest that we believe exactly as the government would ask us to believe. We probably think that there should be some legislation. When it talks about Canada's reproductive rights, we just really have a... a, We have a vacuum, is what we have. In 1989, Laws about abortion in Canada were struck down and then never replaced, and no politicians have the courage to face it. But we are one of the very—we are the only Western country, the only Western democracy that doesn't have any legislation regarding abortion. I think the only other countries in the world that are similar are, I think, North Korea and Iraq. So I think those are the, the other two. So we just don't have any laws. And so sometimes you've seen, I don't know if you've ever seen the slogan, but some pro-life groups have just had this slogan, we need a law, at least let's start there. At least let's go somewhere and say that there should be some legislation, there should be some restrictions on abortion. And so to say that, well, we believe that reproductive rights should be unlimited, uh, that's pretty hard to agree to. We don't agree to that. So now I'm going to lead you in prayer. In case you got offended, my heart, my cry for you, for me as well, I can get offended, I do get offended, is that we would live a joyful life in Christ because we are always aware of what He's done for us. And we bring that into our interactions, even with people who are doing us unjustly. I kind of feel this is unjust what's happening. Maybe you feel that too. But I don't want you or me to be trapped in that, to live the rest of our lives thinking of ourselves as the persecuted victims. We have been blessed beyond what we deserve. We've received the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, made us his. There's nothing, 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 no injustice that can ever erase that we're undeservedly rich we are undeservedly rich and it can never be taken away so let's pray lord i choose to forgive i feel this is unjust and i choose to forgive thank you lord thank you lord That bitterness is not the destiny that you called us to, but joy. So we choose to forgive. We choose to forgive. People who draft legislation that seems so misguided, we choose to forgive. We choose to forgive that, Lord Jesus. Doesn't mean we won't engage. Doesn't mean we won't press for better, just laws and and good legislation. Doesn't mean we won't do that. We just choose to forgive, though, Lord. We will not... Allow a bitter root to go into our hearts over this. We're undeservedly rich. Lord, when we are tempted to focus on what we don't have, bring us back to what we have in you. Bring us back to all that we have in you. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness. You've given us everything we need. And Lord, the government's not our provider you are. So we just come back to you and we rejoice in you. We love you. We thank you that you can, you can, in the midst of injustice all around, we see how you did something that wasn't deserved, but you brought us grace and mercy. You made us your own when we deserved uh, abandonment. So, Lord, we just thank you so much for what you've done for us on the cross. And thank you that that can bring us joy in every area of our lives. In your name. Amen. Amen. I hope you chose to forgive along with me this morning. You'll be in a better place for it if you do. Let's keep going into 1 Corinthians. I've got 10 minutes. Oh, my goodness. How can I do it? Let me give you the key. That's what I have to do. I just have to give you the key to unlock chapter 7. Chapter 7 is a minefield of confusion Here's the key. It took me a long time to find it. It's the context. Paul writes in chapter 7 about marriage, singleness, divorce, widows. He writes to them. He's already written the thing to the people who are just being sexually promiscuous. Now, which, which might tend to be more the Jews. The Jews... Idealized marriage. They put it up here. But the Greeks in the church in Corinth, because there were Jews and Greeks in the Greek, the Greeks, they were more like philosophical, sort of aesthetic. If you think of like Spock from Star Trek, the Greeks were, they were different. And they had an ideal that probably you've almost never heard of. It's not an issue today because we're more like those Jews who idealize marriage but have trouble with our sexual stuff. The, the Greeks were different. They said, well, now that we're followers of Jesus, in order, maybe, maybe the best way to live is to live aesthetically. Like, maybe we shouldn't even be having sex. You ever thought that? This is, this is strange to us. But it's not totally strange to us. These guys are all like, yeah, marriage is good, but there's also those girls at the temple. These guys are like, yes, I'm married, but wouldn't I be more holy if we didn't have any physical relations inside our marriage? Hmm. You want to know what the devil's plan for your sex life is? He wants to tempt you as much as he can to have sex before you're married he'll do everything he can to get you to have sex before you're married and then he'll do everything he can to stop you from having sex once you're married that's it in a nutshell that's it so when you read in in chapter 7 when you're reading chapter 7 words like this the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. Or chapter, verse 2, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. He's writing to these Spock-like Greeks who are going, hmm, maybe just better not to have sex. It's like, you're married! God created this good thing to bond you together you should do. Well, I can't believe I run out of time because I'm gonna end on a silly story, but <laughs> the whole rest of chapter seven, you gotta understand that Paul is walking this tightrope line between two, the Greeks and the Jews. And one side is like, marriage is ideal, and the other one's like, celibacy is ideal. So maybe singleness is better. And so he's walking this tightrope, line, and he's sort of saying, you know what, guys? If you're single, stay single and be happy. You're married, stay married and be happy and have sex. And he's saying these things because he's trying to navigate between two different cultures and so it comes off terribly awkward. But he's basically just trying to help them say, you know what? You're not married. Faithfulness for you means abstaining from sex. You are married. Faithfulness for you means not depriving each other and and in, and doing that and having that together. And then he talks a little bit about divorce. He sort of adds something Jesus said you can divorce if someone commits adultery. He adds one. He says if you des- if someone deserts you, especially if you're in a mixed marriage, one's a believer not a not a believer. But try to stay in that marriage and try to make it work and try to bless that person, and your kids will be blessed because there will at least be one parent who loves Jesus. He's covering a lot of ground. He's covering a lot of ground. He's just walking a tightrope between two different cultures, and that's why it comes off so incredibly awkward. Why does he keep talking about singleness? Well, he's appealing to those Greeks. Why does he keep talking about marriage like that? Well, he's appealing to this. And he says some things about slavery which sound crazy, but he's just illustrating. They're not crazy. He basically says he's talking about contentment. And the fact that you became a follower of Jesus means simply don't have sex outside of marriage. And when you're married, you should. Now, the helpful. Silly illustration. When my wife and I got married, our first problem that we encountered was right after the honeymoon. We went on a nice week, went out to Banff, stayed in king-size, rooms with king-size beds everywhere we went. Then I came, we came back to Nipawin, Saskatchewan. Now I had, at that point, I was renting... A mobile, a mobile home on the edge of town. Now, it wasn't, you know, it was no, it was no you know, it was double wide. Like, it was pretty nice. <laughs> I mean, in the summer, it was double wide. Only one side was heated, so in the winter, it was <laughs> single, but whatever. Unfortunately, the dryer was in the frozen part, but anyhow, it didn't matter. <laughs> My wife still says that's a big deal, but whatever. Anyhow, so we got married, and we, and so I brought her back to our, you know, our home that I was renting on the edge of town. And that's when she saw what I was using for a bed. See, I didn't have a lot of money at that point in my life. I had actually borrowed from the church a bunch of wooden chairs, church chairs for all my furniture. I had three that were a couch, two that were a love seat. They had stamped on the back of them, Nipwin Apostolic Church. But everyone knew I worked there, so it wasn't too strange. And, and I really own nothing, practically nothing. But someone in the church had said, I have a single bed uh, frame, you can use that. And so he brought it over, but it was a waterbed frame. And you know how they are, they've got walls up to here. But I only had a single mattress, a normal mattress, which went inside. So actually to get into bed, I'd have to climb in every night and then lie down. And the walls were up here. I called it the coffin bed. <laughs> so when I married Marnie and brought her home and picked her up and carried her across the threshold, welcome home, honey, she's like looking at the wooden chairs in the living room, and then she goes into the bedroom, and there's the coffin bed. Well, the night, night comes, and it's time to go to bed, and so I climb into bed, and Marnie <laughs> climbs into bed <laughs> and I, I'd never been claustrophobic before in my life <laughs> but then I was so I'm lying there and I'm like <sighs> I was 27 when I got married I, I'd had a lot of time of not sharing a bed and I was used to it And I was fighting inside my mind, and I thought, she is going to be so mad. She's going to be so disappointed. She's going to be so hurt. But I can't breathe. So I turned to her and said, would you be offended if I sleep in the living room? Now, she was hurt but I had to get out of there. And so I got out of the bed, I went to the living room, and then, oh, I'm going to just do it again. And then I lied down again, like a starfish, (laughs) and breathed big lungfuls of oxygen and freedom and space, and it was wonderful. And then I didn't realize she was standing over top of me. (laughs) Probably thinking how pathetic her new husband was. Our first issue was that I, this sounds bad, I didn't want to spend as much time or be as close to my wife as she wanted to be with me. That was our first issue. I I was feeling smothered. Now we got a new bed right away but I still felt smothered. Marty didn't have a job at the time. I would go to work all day, and then I'd come home, and she'd just basically pounce at the door, and, ah, honey, you're home! And I'd be like, come on, give me a break. (laughs) And we had lots of misunderstandings that first year. I'd say, I need to go for a walk. She'd say, how long? I'd say, oh, I wish you hadn't asked that. (laughs) 30 minutes. 30 minutes? 45. (laughs) And so we'd have to sit down and talk and I'd say, I'm so embarrassed. I wish I was like you. I wish I wanted to be together all the time, but I'm not used to this and this is strange and it's difficult and I'm having a hard time and I, and I need to keep going for walks to sort of settle myself down so I can come in and be nice. And it's embarrassing. So what did we do? In the end we said, You want to be with me this much, and I want to be with you this much. So for me to give, it looks like this, and for you to give, it looks like this. And somewhere in the middle, we'll figure it out. And you know what? Even though it was hard and difficult, we figured it out together. And that was satisfying. We got a win. We figured it out together. So this is my final when you get to that verse that you want to use like a hammer to get your way in this area of your relationship, that do not deprive each other verse, don't do that. In fact, this morning, if, I mean, I was going to go read through it all and stuff like that, but you, oh man, I was hoping you'd read through that so that my spouse would hear. Pull back from that. Pull back from that. You know what would be really great? Really great? If we learn to understand each other. We came into relationships and we said, okay. I think you're strange. But I don't think it's sinful. So I want to understand why you have a different desire in this area than I do. And even if we can't fully understand it ourselves, is there some way that we can go from this far apart to maybe this far apart? You know, something big enough that we are small enough that we could actually leap over. And this is every area of relationship, not just sex. But this is every area of relationship. That like, same dynamic exists. It's like I find the way that you operate is so strange, but I don't think it's sinful. And so help me understand it. And what does it look like when I give? And then the other person can say, Well, what does it look like when I give? And realizing that all you can do is do your part of the give. <laughs> you can't even compel the other side to give. But so many times in marriage, we just get to those points where we're just saying, we're so far apart. I wanna, I've said this to different couples at the time. No matter how strange a solution you come up with, as long as it's not sinful, good for you. It's your game. You're the players on the field. Don't go out there comparing yourself to any other couple out there if you're married. Don't. That's not wise. That's foolish. Just the two of you talk about it. Sort it out together. If you need someone to step in, if you need a third party, if you need to go for counseling or something like that, do that. That's smart. I've talked to a couple's, all the time we say, yeah, we couldn't figure it out. Went, got a third party involved, like a counselor. Then we figured it out quick and we're doing great. So glad we did that. But you can. You don't have to apologize if you if you figure it out together, you're gonna to have a great big win in your heart. And I mean Marnie and I, we look back on those days. I don't go for walks anymore. I'm cured. I go for a walk, but I don't go for a walk because I'm hyperventilating. Right? But it's a win under our belt that we figured out how to deal with the strangeness each of us brought to our marriage. And um, I believe God can lead you in these things too. So let me pray for you. Let me pray for you then. God, thank you that you have so much mercy for us in this area. You know, all the times in which I've been perplexed and I didn't have the answer for sorting all these things out. But Lord, you. You not only have answers, but you have grace for those who don't have answers. You have great mercy for us. Lord, help us to extend your grace in marriage to each other. Help us to forgive. Help us to rejoice in you. Help us help any bitter root to be plucked out. I pray for any bitter root in our lives. You do not want that thing to grow up and bear fruit. You see the consequences. You know how bad it can get. And Lord, you confront us for our good. And so, Lord, we don't want we don't allow any bitter root to grow up in our lives. But Lord Jesus, we want to be able to forgive and then to renew our commitment to love. I think about married people in the room. I thank you for the vows that each one of them took at a certain point to love, honor, and cherish in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, till death do them part. What an incredible picture of the gospel what an incredible picture of you. What an incredible picture of a commitment-keeping God, of a covenant-making God who is faithful to his people. So Lord, help us be your imitators. You are so faithful to us. Help us to be faithful. And Lord, where we despair that we could ever be like you, that we could ever imitate you in these areas. Lord, would you give us hope? Lord, we need some strategies. We need some ideas. But Lord, would you give us hope that you will walk us through every step of our journey from where we're at now to the place in the future where we better reflect who you are. And thank you that you call us to that. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. I pray you just bless the marriages and families of this church. I pray for every single person that you bless them. I pray that in every way we reflect your gospel and your glory in your name. Amen. Just before you go,